Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Robert Gould is a physician in San Francisco. For years, he has also devoted probably most of his free time to issues related to the long-term dangers of nuclear weapons. We are preoccupied, and understandably so right now, with the coronavirus. But we cannot forget that nuclear weapons will be here after the pandemic ends. He is kind enough to join us today to talk about the real dangers of nuclear weapons and how it will affect our overall survival. Dr. Gould, thank you so much for being with us. It's a real pleasure to be here, Abby. Thanks so much for having me on. We all know that nuclear weapons are extraordinarily dangerous and merciless when it comes to life. I want to get into some of the more specifics of what's going on, but it seems to me in so many ways that people have become less worried, perhaps even cavalier, about nuclear exchanges. Am I correct? Well, again, uh, thinking about your question, we have to talk about which people. So certainly those populations that have been exposed to the impacts of nuclear weapons, and I can certainly speak to my own experiences going to Japan a few times together with colleagues from Physicians for Social Responsibility and International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War last time in 2012, the year after Fukushima, is that the memories of the twin bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which by the end of 1945 led to the deaths by heat blast and radiation of over 110,000 human beings, still is pretty indelible among Japanese people where these issues have been commemorated in museums in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and throughout Japan. I'd also add to those who have direct experience of this era would be the, the Marshallese who had their islands where you could literally go out and put a spear in the waters and pick out a fish had their beautiful areas completely blown up with multiple nuclear tests and were abandoned to PX rations and chronic diseases by the U.S. military and have suffered the impacts as well of radiation and various diseases never really being dealt with adequately. But we have many victims of the nuclear era in our own country. Thinking about Navajo miners who are mining uranium that had both the civilian nuclear power industry as well as the weapons industry suffering from the impacts of uranium tailings, downwinders uh, ranging from New Mexico where the first nuclear weapon was exploded in uh, 1945, about a month before the Japanese explosion. Still many people suffering from the sequelae there in Nevada and so on and so forth. But I would underscore the, those, and including in my own area, those in uh, the largely African-American community within Southeast San Francisco, Bayview, Hunters Point, who have very high levels of legacy radioactive contamination from ships where the explosions occurred in the Pacific, coming back to port and contaminating those areas. So we have those legacy issues. But to the point of your question, I think that with the exception of those populations who have reasons to remember, this is largely faded from the comprehension and understanding and memory of most people who were too young to remember what I remember, and you probably as well, from the days of duck and cover. At any point, we can have an incoming missile from the Soviet Union, and we engaged in civil defense against those threats. Most of younger generation in particular, they're more galvanized by issues of global warming and environmental and social justice. They're very active, but the, the nuclear issues elude them. 
And it's a real challenge for us, for example, where I work at UCSF School of Medicine, when we're talking about nuclear weapons issues, largely have to talk to them by framing them as equally significant existential environmental health issues, just looking at the whole life cycle of nuclear weapons and nuclear power and connecting it with the issues that they're more familiar with. They were born after the Cold War end. What's really a personal, shall we say, cross point in my life, I grew up in Western Ohio, and I remember finally when I was in my late teenage years that the milk that I drank may have been contaminated by radiation, which you refer to as downwinders, that had traveled all that way. The rain washed it down to the ground. It got into the grass. The grass was eaten by the cows. And lo and behold, I was part of that process. To this day, it's just, it makes me quiver, and it brought it to be very real. It's very much hidden history, and you're absolutely right. People tend to think of the impacts of the above-ground testing times, the release of radioactive iodine from the Hanford site in Washington as being local phenomenon, but particularly the nuclear weapons testing, like milk got distributed all around the country in 1997. The National Cancer Institute estimated that there would be anywhere from 12,000 to 212,000 excess cases of thyroid cancer are attributable to that distribution within milk. It was remarkable at the time that we were releasing this through above-ground nuclear testing, companies such as Kodak in Rochester and others who had had their industrial operations impacted by the radiation were forewarned, but not the American people at this time. I mean, I still remember my own dad. I grew up in the Gunhill Projects in the Bronx, and we were eating sort of low on the food chain, sardines and tomato sauce, which we call tomato herring. And my father would warn me when I was about seven. So we're talking about 1959. Bobby, you know, don't eat the bones in the sardines because, you know, because they were soft. They could just mash them up because they contain radioactive material. And that's what we were all exposed to during the time of above-ground nuclear testing, let alone you being in Ohio. For all I know, you might have been in close proximity to the Fernal nuclear weapons facility that was part of the chain of building nuclear weapons and was also heavily contaminated uh, as well. I was not near that, but in my town was a small but nonetheless real nuclear reactor. It was a test reactor. They used a different organic material as a coolant, so it was quite a science experiment. It was closed, and I do not know the outcome, and I say this knowing that if someone knows that I'm wrong, let me know, please, but I think there were some contamination issues related to it. So we have this issue that these are not benign processes. And the bombs are designed to kill people. They're designed to literally wipe out life. But it's become, again, your opinion, has it become such that people see them as matters of deterrence and that the reason that they are not used is for fear of retaliation, especially with the North Korea stuff going on right now? Has the shift drifted that they are not aggressive but defensive weapons? Is that a fair thing to say? Certainly among the, those who are called the defense intellectuals, the nuclear priesthood, those who've both designed and propagated the need for nuclear weapons have, over the course of 70 years, articulated various tenets of deterrence. Nuclear weapons, in a few individual cases, have certainly provided, if you will, deterrence from attack. And I'm thinking of countries such as North Korea, who, because they're still technically in a state of war, 
with the United States has, in my view and the view of others, pursued a nuclear weapons program so it minimizes their chance of getting a massive conventional weapons attack from the United States and allies in the region. And one could apply the same logic that has driven to date still not nuclear weapons capable program in Iran. And the negative lessons that such countries have learned in the case of both Iraq and Libya having given up nascent nuclear weapons programs whereby those leaders, Gaddafi in Libya and Saddam Hussein in Iraq, were driven from power and killed. But when we're talking about the nuclear weapons states, and particularly the United States and Russia, with somewhere on the order of 94% of the nuclear weapons stockpiles, countries like China, France, and the UK with the arsenals on the order of 200 to 300, when you start involving those types of strategic gaming inherent in deterrent, people were looking at this in a more, to me, objective and critical way, that idea that you could somehow hold off horrible things from happening by building more weapons. Many of those arguments fall apart if examining the historical record. First of all, I would want to say that what has been key to our own strategic posture in the United States since constant numerous nuclear posture reviews through the years, the last one being in 2018, is what Paul Nitze, who was one of the early and leading defense intellectuals, articulated long ago as the essential role of nuclear weapons and what he articulated as escalation dominance, that at every level of violence you would have the upper hand. That has really been what the role of nuclear weapons have been, either to be able to use them or to exercise them as totem, use them in that sense. Barry Blackman, back in 1980 and picked up by Dan Ellsberg, listed many areas in the historical record where the United States mobilized nuclear weapons as a major threat to support conventional operations, anywhere from Lebanon in 1958, Guatemala in 1954. The record goes on and on and on that. Sue Ellsworth had a very interesting paper back in 2015 at a conference, Beyond Deterrence, Rethinking You security doctrine when she was reflecting on how this concept of a deterrence really retards being able to escape the nuclear dangers. She illustrated a number of important points that the doctrine of deterrence is sort of contagious. It reifies the importance of nuclear weapons so that other countries seek to attain them. And many areas of the world right now, say for example in the Middle East, not only do we have the Iranian program, but we also have nascent programs within the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia built on civilian nuclear power plants. And we've had, as documented by folks like Eric Schlosser in Command and Control, more recently by Dan Ellsberg and his remarkable doomsday machine, dozens of episodes where this deterrence doctrine might have made sense to some of these intellectuals, but actually we came so close to nuclear conflict and planet-ending nuclear war so many times in the last 70 years by accident, flocks of geese misinterpreted as incoming attacks. In North Carolina, one of our civilian, in an area of uh, civilian airspace, back in 1962, one of our own bombers accidentally dropped a nuclear weapon on North Carolina, and three of the four fail-safe mechanisms failed. 
The documentary record is clear that although people could say nuclear weapons have kept the peace, they're peacekeepers and things like that, we have too often very scary episodes where we could have had hundreds of millions of people die around the world in an exchange between the U.S. and then Soviet Union. But even more recently, we have many models that have been raised. This doesn't have to be an exchange between the largest nuclear superpowers. Even a relatively small conflict over there, so to speak, in South Asia, between India and Pakistan, only involving 100 Hiroshima-sized weapons, could not only kill 20 million people in the region from the radioactive fallout and the blast. Models have now predicted that targets were incinerated according to plan. There would be so much soot and debris from burning cities rising into the atmosphere that we could have what Carl Sagan modeled back in the late 1980s, severe nuclear winter, which would block out sunlight, plunge uh, global temperatures up to 7 degrees, and uh, cause massive fall in worldwide production of corn, wheat, and rice, whereby it's estimated that up to 2 billion people can suffer and many die from malnutrition. Uh, Alan Robach, who's done the modeling on this, said, well, Bob, in fact, you know, some currency. He and I and others would submit that we really want to deal with global warming, not to spend as much as we do on nuclear weapons and use it to provide the funding for sustainable energy and do a crash program akin to a Manhattan project that was used to build nuclear weapons to deal with our climate crisis. I so agree with you, and one of the graphics that I find myself encountering when I discuss this whole topic with people is I say Nagasaki and Hiroshima both received the bombs, and people will say to me, yeah, but look, they've come back, they've rebuilt, and gladly they have, to which I say, yes, that was two bombs, relatively small. Imagine 200 bombs, much more powerful and the damage that they can do. And I don't see people making that, that leap. They don't project that way. And I'm just wondering if, and thank God the people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki rebuilt, maybe it's just me. I think it gives an, an, an inaccurate or a dangerous or it makes people too laissez-faire about what these bombs really can do to people. Your thoughts? And I think these have been removed from popular imagination. And if you don't have somebody in your family who's in the military who walked to ground zero and got radioactive contamination or the 600,000 people who worked at Atomic Energy Commission and Department of Energy facilities and suffered exposure to radioactive materials, it's just not in one's brain. Yes, you know, I've been to Hiroshima. It's now a beautiful city, as is Nagasaki. So it's up to us to certainly to understand the health issues to help generate the interest in this that's lacking. Climate change is much more real to people, except for the people who are denying it. This is why we try to spread the word, particularly in the 75th anniversary of those bombings. But like you say, we have 13,410 nuclear weapons in the world as of April of this year. Thousands of them are on hair trigger alert. They could be fired any moment, and 30 minutes later, you have mobile conflagration. I would say, however, that there have been repeated 
big polls of American people, certainly worldwide populations as well. And when people are informed of what that destruction would be, they're opposed to it. It's always how you pose the question. They're thinking now about COVID. They're thinking about the mask issue. We have information about the trade-offs where we're now spending over the next 30 years anywhere between 1.2 to 1.6 trillion dollars on modernizing and maintaining our nuclear weapons arsenal. When you break it down to the four to six million dollars every hour, people recognize that's not chump change. There are multiple ways that we need to be able to talk to people and make that real. What can people do to make things safer? We know there are organizations around several nuclear bomb treaties to reduce the bombs and the like. Where are we today in making, you know, making things safer? Good question. Not well mobilized, unfortunately. I mean, our own organization, Physicians for Social Responsibility, arose in the early 1960s as part of a very broad and vibrant anti-nuclear weapons movement that was around the world. And we raised consciousness into the 60s, collecting baby teeth to demonstrate the effects of radioactive contamination. And since the early 1960s, starting with articles in the New England Journal of Medicine, trying to leverage the health professional voice on this because through all these years, people have trusted their physicians. The American Academy of Pediatrics in the late 1950s and the AAP has been very involved on all sorts of environmental health issues. Their first committee was set up in 1957 to deal with the radioactive health issues. Physicians for Social Responsibility and the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War over the years have utilized our credibility of physicians to leverage those voices in the larger anti-nuclear movement. There have been some important treaties in 1962. Our efforts with the New England Journal of Medicine article led to, in 1963, President Kennedy signing the atmospheric test ban that stopped the era, for the most part, of above-ground nuclear testing, which is very important, although nuclear weapons continue to be developed underground. Another major treaty that is still in effect is the non Proliferation Treaty, whereby the nuclear weapon states are pledged to eliminate their nuclear arsenals in the most speedy fashion. And that's Article 6 of the treaty. This pledge was in turn for the rest of the world, the potential nuclear wannabe countries, not to use, quote unquote, atoms for peace, peaceful nuclear power programs, and turn them into weapons programs, which unfortunately has happened over the years, partly because the nuclear weapon states, including our own, have stonewalled for now over 50 years from carrying out their own treaty obligations. And it was because of this resistance to making the change that all of these nine states are obligated to do, PSR and our allies, to move outside of the non-proliferation treaty procedures, the model of the, the landmine convention to shame them into abandoning nuclear weapons. And this movement led in 2017 to 122 countries around the world to vote for the treaty. 
We do move our own country into compliance. We at PSR are working on it in the wake of that victory and the awarding of the Nobel Peace Prize to the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. And we were a co-founder of a broad movement called Back from the Brink, which not only involves positions for social responsibility, but Union of Concerned Scientists and other NGOs, Sierra Clubs, another one that quickly comes to mind to build the broad coalition we need to move toward reducing the nuclear dangers. Some of the planks include taking weapons off alert status so that they can't be quickly fired. Every country like our own should declare we will never use nuclear weapons first. Authority of a president to fire nuclear weapons, a danger that we've always had to end the program to modernize nuclear weapons because of the dangers of developing new capabilities with the tremendous cost and also to move towards a verifiable treaty to eliminate nuclear weapons, whether that would be a nuclear weapons convention. We've had many municipalities pass the back from the brink package, if you will. Many cities in California, Los Angeles, there was a declaration of both the California State Legislature back in 2018. Other cities around the country, Baltimore comes to mind. The National Conference of Mayors has adopted back from the brink as its central policy because mayors understand the budgetary impact ending for nuclear weapons as opposed dealing with COVID, housing, healthcare, etc. This is important, but we need to link larger social movements so we can advance on climate and nuclear weapons and military issues. That's how it's, in my view, going to move to the next step. We are unfortunately running out of time, and you are clearly the wonderful encyclopedia of material that I always knew that you were on these topics. I would ask people to listen to what you said and to start reading about it. This is not an isolated problem that belongs to someone else. It belongs to all of us. Bob Gould is a physician in San Francisco, and he very generously gave us a lot of time to talk about the issues and concerns and where we need to go regarding nuclear weapons. Bob, thank you very much. I wish you well. Take care. Stay away from the corona. Thank you, Abby. I really appreciate it. If I could just leave people with one or two sites so they can look up the Back from the Brink yes. uh, campaign, please join at preventnuclearwar.org. And I'd also invite people to look up the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. And of course, if you're interested in this, please join us. I know, as Abby knows, there are chapters in Florida as well of positions for social responsibility, www.psr.org. And Really hope that you could join us in this important effort to end the surge of nuclear weapons once and for all.